Welcome to the podcast of ideas. The following discussion was held on the 20th of April 2022, hosted by the Academy of Ideas, titled United We Stand, Ukraine and the Future of the West. In the chair is Claire Fox. Okay, everybody, um, I'd like to welcome you to this evening's Academy of Ideas event. Um, United We Stand, question mark, Ukraine and the Future of the West. I'm Claire Fox and I'm the director of the Academy of Ideas and this is the second debate that we've had on the issue of Ukraine since the war started and we envisage it's one of a series of events because we don't anticipate sadly that the war is going to end anytime soon and so the Academy of Ideas is committed to trying to go beneath the headlines and to ask the kind of questions that we all kind of try and discuss when we're watching the telly and I'm not quite sure of the answers, but don't always get the satisfactory replies when we are watching mainstream media. The reason why we were very keen to organise a discussion on the issue of the future of the West and the idea of whether there's new unity is because certainly initially when the invasion happened, there was a sense in which it looked as though the West was getting its act together, as some people would see it, and pulling together to all be opposed to the invasion of Ukraine. But since then, I think that we can see that there are tensions and contradictions. And it's also the case for some of us who maybe been critical of Western intervention in the past, that when you say the West getting its act together, it's not necessarily something that you want to rejoice about either. So what does all that mean in terms of Is this going to lead to a reinvigorated NATO? Will the EU suddenly uh, get its act together, as people are suggesting? Just in terms of some of the tensions, I just wanted to start with just one quote that I read today about Germany, which is the tensions in Germany, which may be by the end of today resolved, but uh, one of the commentators said, it's hard to underestimate the size of the scandal that is ongoing in Germany now, with regards to the government's Russia policy, and it's been called the scandal of the century, is, is not an overstatement. It will haunt official uh, Germany for a long time to come. So within Germany, there's a lot of tension. We know that within France, there's a lot of tension, and we know that amongst those great powers, there are some tensions. And then I read this article um, uh, a, a few weeks ago in the Times, entitled... Uh, globalisation is dying and we'll all miss it. I don't know about uh, that (laughs) latter point. But the point is that Emma Duncan is saying it's the end of globalisation and people are suggesting that rather than unity, what we're seeing is the rise of economic nationalism and autarky and that actually maybe the conflict in Ukraine is going to shake things up in a way that is going to, rather than unite the West, actually lead to some fracturing. Anyway, you haven't come to hear me speak. You've come to hear the speakers, and I'm going to introduce them in the order in which they'll speak because they will just help us shine some light on it. They, on the one hand, have got expertise, but they're partly here as a stage army. No disrespect to you all. Um, Because you're here to kind of stimulate a bit of discussion, really, so that we can have the important part of the conversation, which is to involve the audience in a toing and froing, and I'll keep coming back to you. So we're going to hear from, initially, uh, Nick Busveen, who is a partner at Herminius Holdings Limited, 
an advisory board member and writer at Briefings for Britain. I highly recommend that uh, site. Uh, he's a Seven Oaks town councillor. He's a former diplomat at the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, and I just heard him saying that he's a flying instructor, which strikes me as being very glamorous, uh, I have to say. But Nick is always interesting. He's spoken at a number of our events before, and I'm delighted he's with us this evening. We've got uh, Professor Bill Derodier, who's sitting next to me. He's the Chair of Risk and Security in International Relations at the University of Bath. And he's previously held posts in British Columbia, Singapore, and at the Defence Academy in War Studies, in the War Studies Group at King's College uh, London. And uh, Bill has been particularly interesting over the years on issues like risk and the precautionary principle, but obviously his take on this um, from such a wide range of international relations perspectives I hope will be helpful to us. We're then going to hear from Professor Frank Faraday, who's a sociologist and social commentator, who actually uh, gave the opening lecture at the first uh, event that we did on Ukraine. He's the author of First World War, Still No End in Sight, which I noted at the time that when I read it the first time round, I thought it was very interesting, but it didn't really seem that relevant. And now, of course, it seems very, very relevant. Uh, he most recently uh, uh, brought out 100 Years of Identity Crisis and also a book which I think is particularly apt for tonight's discussion, Why Borders Matter, um, and also a book on populism and the European culture wars. Uh, so we look forward to hearing from Frank. And last but not least, we'll have Humphrey Hawksley, who is a journalist who I'm sure many of you will recognise. He's an Asia specialist. He's a former foreign correspondent at the BBC. He's the author of Man on Ice, Asian Waters, and the Third World War rather pertinently, sadly. Um, but can we just give the uh, speakers a warm welcome, please? <laughs> They've been asked to give their reflections for seven minutes or so, and whilst they're speaking, I hope that you can be thinking of the kind of contributions or points that you'd like to make. No holes barred in as much as you can argue whatever you wish. Um, don't feel that there's one line. There certainly isn't. It's not uh, straightforward. But also, don't be frightened to think out loud and be contradictory. I do it all the time. Uh, this is a confusing and complex situation we're in. There is no obvious, easy answers in this, and so I'd really like to encourage people to just speak frankly and ask questions, even if you think they're a bit daft, or make points that you think go against the grain of what the speakers are saying. But let's hand over to Nick. I've got first-hand experience of the West not getting its act together, having served in um, Baghdad in 2007-8 at the height of the war. And uh, I'm interested to hear Claire refer to France and Germany. They are going to feature in my seven-minute spiel, which, forgive me, I'm going to read out because I'm not quite as experienced as these other chaps uh, on the panel. So I would say this is a seminal moment uh, with Putin's regular veiled warnings about the possible use of nuclear weapons a grim reminder of what is at stake. At times like these, we have to constantly remind ourselves that life is not a rehearsal. This is it. We're at a key moment of history. When terrible things happen, the character of peoples and their governments will be judged by how they respond, not in terms of pledges and statements of good intent, but what they do now in real time. This is a profoundly serious situation that poses a set of threats not seen since World War II. This should serve as a reminder to us, uh, to all of us, of what is really important and what it is that unites freedom-loving peoples. 
And those unifying principles are surely liberty, freedom of speech, and democracy. In short, the ability of ordinary people to peacefully hold those in power to account. Contrast this with the self-loathing manifested in our culture wars and growing suspicion among Western elites about the value of democracy in the face of wrong outcomes, which is often coupled with a penchant, picking up on Claire's voice, for globalist institutions that are difficult or impossible for humble voters to hold to account. The situation in the Ukraine is deeply complex, but even to the non-experts among us, the reality of what Putin is trying to achieve and how is now abundantly clear. It also seems reasonable to conclude that the Minsk Accords were always doomed, subject as they were to mutually incompatible interpretations on both sides. Given their role as Minsk mediators and their familiarity with the challenges to achieving a stable solution, the willingness of France and Germany to plunge into deeper commercial relationships with Russia since 2015 surely begs questions. According to an Investigate Europe report published in March, sanctions notwithstanding, the leading EU suppliers of weapons to Russia during 2015-20 were France and Germany. But it was Germany's willingness to impale itself so comprehensively on the Russian gas hook that almost beggars belief. Smart politicians like Rory Stewart were almost tripping over themselves a few short months ago to praise Angela Merkel as a model European leader. Well, that doesn't look smart now. It looks terribly naive or worse. Since 2016, there have been endless Remainer attempts to label Trump, Trump supporters and Brexiteers as Moscow collaborators. But the attempts to smear Brexit in this way have simply not stood up to scrutiny. On the other side of the Atlantic, the inadequacies of the Steele dossier have now been thoroughly exposed. And whatever any of us might think about Trump, the simple truth is that he warned us all explicitly of the pickle the Germans were getting themselves into during the 2018 NATO summit, as clips on YouTube attest. Moscow's useful idiots, it turns out, were not the dreaded populists in the UK and US. They were the so-called adults in the room, the mainstream EU leaders who chose to place commercial and economic interest ahead of core principles. Why did Putin invade? He obviously harbours a strong belief that Ukrainians are part of a rider Russian people. But I also assume he took confidence from evidence of Western weakness, a sense perhaps that the West has lost faith in freedom and democracy, that it can be bought off and corrupted. Maybe this was a perception shared in Beijing. And one can see why conclusions might have been drawn by a hostile observer of foreign adventures, such as Iraq and Afghanistan, and the domestic debates that rage on both sides of the Atlantic around identity politics and history. But even more worryingly, I cannot help but wonder if Putin took comfort from the apparent loss of confidence among our elites with popular democracy. Maybe Putin will have drawn confidence from the degree to which many of our great and good now feel entitled to disavow election results they do not approve of on the grounds that they are populist. I have served in too many places where there is no commitment to accountability and, democ and democracy is a charade. In other words, democracy is fine just so long as I win an approach Putin himself clearly feels comfortable with. So what does this mean for the West? Well, first the good news. The invasion of Ukraine has reminded us what is, it is that is really important and what we, should be prepared to, what we should be prepared to defend with our lives. 
the Ukrainian defence of their land has been humbling. The support from most neighbouring East European and Baltic states has been un unstinting and wholehearted. The use of intelligence by the US and UK ahead of the invasion was brilliant and effectively destroyed Moscow's ability to control the narrative. The crisis has breathed new life into NATO. While Trump's warnings about NATO fell, in, fell on deaf ears in the, uh, in the heart of the EU, with Macron declaring in 2019 that NATO was brain dead in a dig against the Americans, we now see the prospect of Sweden and Finland actually joining. Germany has finally promised to up its military spending, despite President Biden's odd comment about <clears throat> a limited NATO response to a minor incursion into Ukrainian territory. The US has now provided an enormous amount of military support to Kiev. The UK response has been particularly strong. Boris Johnson may have driven us nuts over Partygate and a failure to get a grip in various domestic policy areas, but on Ukraine, he has played a, an absolute blinder. My briefings for Britain Advisory Board colleague, Professor Gwythian Prince, has gone so far as to conclude Boris was essential in mid-February in backing up Ben Wallace against assorted securocrats who would have blocked the sending of, an er of the early consignment of N-law anti-tank weapons. And had the UK and the UK alone not made those transfers and had not delivered the training of 22,000 uh, Ukrainian Armed Force regulars since 2014 in Operation Orbital, this war would have been lost in one to three days. That may be debatable, but it is, if that isn't evidence of post-Brexit global Britain in action, I simply do not know what is. The speed and agility of the UK response to this crisis, bilaterally with Ukraine, as well as in a NATO, in a NATO and joint expeditionary force context, has made a mockery of Remainer initiatives to begin to squeeze us back into an EU defence and security architecture that is not fit for purpose. On the negative side, we have seen some frankly unhelpful efforts on the part of EU integrationists to compete with NATO. Yesterday we learned that Germany will not supply heaven, the heavenly, heavy weaponry Ukraine desperately needs to withstand the Russian Donbass offensive. Macron and Draghi were also reticent about extending military support. Worse, we continue to see slow peddling on Russian oil and gas, most notably in Berlin which means that Moscow continues to receive the core funds it needs to prosecute this despicable invasion. Yes, sanctions on Russian gas would be incredibly challenging, but the Germans in particular have to confront the consequences of their extraordinary Ostpolitik policy. Berlin and Paris were perfectly prepared to see Greece, Ireland and other states endure economic pain to save the Euro project, as well as a couple of French and German banks, a few years ago. No one has put the point more eloquently than Vladimir Zelensky himself when he addressed the German parliament in mid-March. We warned you, we told you Nord Stream was a preparation for war. We were answered, it's a question of business. It's business, business, business. Thank you. Thank you very much, Nick. That was a really useful uh, way to start the discussion. Lots to dig into later. Um, I didn't mention before, but I'd also like to just say hello to the people who are uh, joining us on the live stream, which Ella is usefully organising for us. And I know there's a lot of people uh, watching in on this, and the whole event will be available on film afterwards. So uh, just for you to know, in case you're hiding or whatever it is. But anyway, um, if I can turn that to uh, Bill you like to give us your introduction, please? Okay, thank you, Claire. Um, I just want to talk about three themes, really. and They are flexibility, and that's in terms of how we 
understand what's going on. Unity, the theme of the, the talk today, and sovereignty. Um, but before that, I just want to remind you, after 9-11, the United States briefly thought that the war on terrorism was going to bring the people together and achieve a degree of unity that hadn't been around for quite some time. They even opened up all the army recruitment centres in the belief that all those people shouting USA, USA would actually sign up and be part of their war effort in Afghanistan. And within a month, they were all closed down again. So there's a presumption at these moments of these events creating unity, but it's often a rhetorical unity rather than a very practical one. We also know that the European Union is marked by disunity every time there's a crisis. In 2008, the financial crisis led pretty much everybody to go their own way until they were all brought back together again. Um, and we've seen the same more recently in relation to the vaccines debacle. I could go through a whole list of uh, disunified EU actions. So I think the first thing we need to understand is that the presumption of unity is not necessarily there. On the other hand, maybe there, at least initially, as Claire, I think, alluded to, has been greater unity amongst Western elites than we have seen for some time. Uh, and we ourselves, in our understanding of what's happening, need to be fleet-footed enough to be able to change our understanding because, you know, events are changing every day. There's the fog of war. There's a considerable amount of bargaining going on between Zelensky and various other people where people are claiming various achievements and various situations that may or may not be true. Before the invasion, many people in this room, I suspect, may have been um, not on the side of Russia, but pointing to the growing Russophobia that we know exists in the world today, um, and then caught off guard when Russia actually invaded. And that's the kind of ability to be able to change as the events change that, that are required here. And that may mean being superficially allied to people that you find rather unpalatable. Because, yes, without a shadow of a doubt, Western elites are using events for their own purposes, to make themselves look good and to give themselves a sense of coherence and purpose. Yes, their agendas are limited and confused. Yes, they are unpalatable individuals and highly problematic. But nevertheless, we may have to say that in the pursuit of partial goals, we may find ourselves on the same side as some of those people. We are at a time, as Zaki Laidi wrote in 1994 when he wrote his book Un monde privé de sens, A World Without Meaning, where historical situations are totally new. I think there's elements where you can look back to past precedent and how to behave, but I think you need to be sharp enough to change uh, and not, fall, not succumb to wishful thinking that somehow there's going to be a coup in Russia or anything like that. You know, Putin has become more popular in Russia as these uh, events have unfurled to the point where he now has allegedly 83% support. On unity, on Western unity, well, if you were Putin, and I think Nigel's made the point, you'd have thought, this is your moment. This is your moment. You've got a very confused president of the United States with a very childish vice, vice president. You've got 20 years of failure in Afghanistan, most you know, recently uh, exemplified. A bumbling British prime minister 
uh, caught up by Partygate, which is the only thing that was discussed on PM this afternoon uh, on Radio 4. And the most unpopular French president of all time, who's about to be re-elected, possibly, uh, a new German chancellor. So this is the moment if you ever wanted to do something. Yes, he may view the West as decadent in relation to its moral as well as political incoherence, and undoubtedly the energy dependence that Nigel's, uh, uh, sorry, that Nick alluded to, my apologies, um, the, you know, is also uh, a big bargaining chip. Every country appears to be divided 50-50, whether it's Brexit, Trump, Macron-Le Pen, even Ukraine was divided 50-50 until quite recently in terms of its allegiances. There appears to be a more confident China, no longer hiding its strength and biding its time. There are other possible regional allies in India uh, and Iran. But the real driver, and I think the key point that we need to get to grips with, is not even Russian decline, but the decline of the United States of America as a, as a great power. And this, I, in my opinion, is an expression of that. The first event of possibly many destabilizing events in the world over the you know, forthcoming period that are expressions of America's decline. Twelve years ago, I wrote an article for the Straits Times in, in Singapore where I concluded that the future is still America's to lose rather than others to win. Whether that still stands is the kind of key point, I think, that needs to be discussed. Quick point on sovereignty. We know that there are the realists in America, best expressed through John Mearsheimer's uh, views of NATO expansion triggering these events. But ultimately, when you look and dig into their argument, what they're really saying is they quite like Ukraine to just compromise with Russia. That's their ideal position. The liberals, on the other hand, would like Ukraine to compromise with the EU and become part of it and compromise with NATO and become part of that. No one is that interested in what Ukrainians think for themselves. So they talk about sovereignty, but they're absolutely not interested in and don't understand what sovereignty is. We have spent many decades denouncing sovereignty, particularly since Brexit, but even since the, second, the end of the Second World War, if you think about it, nation-states became discredited, seen as the cause, if not the, you know, the, the, the driver of the Second World War, Anyone with brains and ambition went into supranational organisations or subnational organisations like civil society groups and, and NGOs. The nation state and its sovereignty was highly discredited. The sovereignty of people has been absolutely discredited, most particularly, of course, over the last two years, where you have had to subject yourself to the science and just shut up and do as you're told. Obviously, Russia doesn't care much about the sovereignty of Ukrainians. But the most depressing thing for me, I have to say, strangely enough, as a visiting professor in China, is that for the last 20 years, I've always said to my students, China, of all the major powers, has always upheld the United Nations Charter and the principles of sovereign equality. Whenever the West had its adventures in Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, uh, and Syria and elsewhere... China has always said you, you have to defend uh, national sovereignty. On this occasion, its silence about Ukraine speaks volumes and tells you that even they don't understand sovereignty. So that's, I think, quite a key point. I just want to conclude 
with my point about the real driver. The real driver is American decline, its fear of change in the world and, that, and what that may mean. The Ukraine is an expression of the problem, not the cause. And where I disagree with Nick is I don't see NATO as part of the solution or becoming any stronger or better because of that. I think what we've had since the end of the Cold War necessarily was a purposeless, directionless NATO. In relation to Ukraine, it already started a Ukraine action plan discussion in 2002 at its enlargement summit, which it then pursued in 2008 at the Bucharest summit. By 2014, Russia had invaded Crimea. We're now in 2022, 20 years after NATO started talking about Ukraine accession to NATO. I think the message there is fairly clear. The most destabilizing thing right now is NATO. And I just want to conclude with a quote from that book that I already cited, Zaki Laidi's uh, A World Without Meaning. He says, Our societies claim that the urgency of problems forbids them from reflecting on a project, when in fact it is their total absence of perspective that makes them slaves of emergencies. I think... That's what we're seeing right now. If we ultimately want to express solidarity with Ukraine and Ukrainians, that may mean taking a far more active role than people even now currently imagine. Taking sides with people that you may find unpalatable and disagreeable. And actually, as I think Nick rightly said right at the beginning, being judged for your actions. Thanks, Bill. That was excellent. Um, actually, it was very complimentary to what Nick was saying. But there are tensions and differences that I'd like to uh, reflect on uh, 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 when we go to the discussion. I'll, 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 I'll get you both to come and, and sort of talk to each other before I go out to the audience. Anyway, uh, Frank, your thoughts, please. Yeah, a, a few weeks ago, <coughs> I wanted to find out for myself uh, what's going on. So I had a chance to go into Ukraine, Western Ukraine, and visit it. Because uh, I tried to kind of pick up on the, on the why to, to see what was really occurring there. And, it, and to my surprise, um, you know, you realize that it's a very kind of complex situation. A lot of people who are fleeing the Ukraine tell me they never want to go back. You know, as far as they're concerned, they're heading for Barcelona, especially the young kids. You know, so young middle class kids think that Barcelona is where all the action is. Others are saying the opposite. They say they're committed to returning at some point. It's a kind of very complex uh, dynamic. Uh, but the thing that really uh, sort of shook me up, the only thing that really shook me up, which I wasn't really expecting, was the fact that I had the sense that something new was being built, something uh, purposeful was being created, that suddenly people who were just ordinary people beforehand, before the invasion of the Ukraine, suddenly began to see the world through a different prism and were, you know, were kind of almost involved in something that was a, a very important and to them very inspiring project. And when I saw that, when I kind of listened to that, I realized how different that mood, that zeitgeist is within the Ukraine to the kind of world we inhabit here in Britain and in other European society. And I think that was really, for me, very, very important. 
then the other thing, as I left the Ukraine, I began to realize, uh, although it's not particularly surprising, is that this conflict is not black and white, and that moreover the situation is continually mutating and changing in all kinds of ways. So when I first began to look at the war and began to uh, demand uh, the defense of uh, Ukrainian sovereignty and, and, and talked about the importance of taking their aspiration for self-determination seriously, at that point, you know, the things were much clearer than today when there's a danger that the way that things are occurring and the way that the war is just dragging on and becoming a very, very, very long war, that what you're going to have and what you already have is a situation where what's happening in the Ukraine is becoming a proxy for a number of conflicting interests. And that in many respects, I have to say that when I look at the way that the United States is operating at the moment, you do get the impression that they regard uh, the events in the Ukraine as a proxy war for uh, a, a number of different kind of objectives, which is a little bit sad, because you get the impression that, f uh, that a lot of the Western powers and a lot of groups within the West regard Ukraine as a medium through which they can express their own interests and their own aspirations, rather than something that they see as being an important issue in and of itself. And that's something we need to be, we need to be aware of. Now today the discussion is really about the West. Right? And the interesting thing about the West, when you kind of look around what, you know, you know, what Western unity really means, is that when you scratch the surface, when you look beneath it all, it becomes evident that uh, the West has got no inner meaning. And it's got, certainly hasn't got any inner purpose. There is no doubt about the fact that although people declare Western ideals and Western liberal democracy and Western values, when push comes to shove, <coughs> the West has lost, or maybe it never had, the kind of uh, moral status that it seeks to flaunt in the, in, in, in the eyes and in the imagination of society. You have to remember that the only time when the West as such gained some definition was in the very specific circumstances during the Cold War. During the Cold War, it was relatively easy for the West to gain a degree of moral authority just simply in virtue of the fact that as against the Soviet Union, as against the Soviet bloc, it could look really good. The West was the land of the free. They stood for freedom and a number of democratic values that were manifestly obvious to many people in the world, whereas the other side was tyranny, uh, lack of democracy, and economic incompetence. And I think during that particular historical <coughs> era, the idea of the West and, 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 and being part of the West began to mean something. But there were certain conditions for the West to have that kind of inner integrity. One of the conditions was the fact that the Western side was, in a sense, dominated by one powerful nation, the United States. And under those conditions, American hegemony could ensure a certain degree of stability and coherence. The kind of coherence that, since that particular, uh, particular time, has been entirely lost. People will recall that under American hegemony, Western Europe was rebuilt. People can recall that under American hegemony, the age-old conflicts between Germany and France 
could be suspended for at least a certain period of time. And in, on the, in that particular moment, uh, the West could really mean something. Uh, but the condition for that was American hegemony, and of course, more importantly, the fact that there was this horrible other side in existence, that the Soviet bloc, with its uh, track record of oppression and dictatorship, provided a negative <coughs> example to everybody, something that could, would persuade just about anybody with the slightest democratic inclinations that being part of the West was unbalanced a good thing. Now, I would argue that, that that has gone. And no sooner did the Cold War come to an end than it became very clear that that Western uh, sort of uh, image of, of Western unity began to unravel very, very swiftly. And you'll find that on a number of key occasions, uh, various co conflicts of interest kind of began to kick in. And what you also found uh, under those circumstances was that uh, Western societies themselves ceased to be, uh, have any kind of unified focus. You know, that Bill talked about uh, and, and, and alluded to an important point, which is that every single Western nation is fundamentally disunited. Western societies are inherently polarized and segmented. It's almost as if there are two different worlds with two different outlooks within, West, within the Western world. And that was for everywhere, from the United States to France to Germany to Britain. We can see this played out in, 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 in kind of technicolor, technicolor all of the time. And of course, you don't need a PhD in political science to understand that if a particular nation, such as France or Britain or America, is so fundamentally disunited you cannot recreate a global unity. You cannot somehow ignore the fact that back home the, in, the, in the domestic domain, you are at each other's throats, but somehow when it comes to global affairs, you're all pulling together. You're all having this kind of coherence within, within, within the world. So I want to suggest that the idea of, uh, of, of the West today uh, has become emptied of meaning. It's become a zombie category uh, and as you know, zombies are very difficult to kill. And therefore, I think for a very long time, the West will continue to essentially live off parasitically from its uh, heyday within the Cold War era, which is why it's very, very interesting. I don't know if you noticed that many, many Western commentators are now talking about the revival of the Cold War. They're talking about, you know, some of them in America are saying the Cold War never ended. And it's almost like they got this uh, Cold War fantasy of recreating the Cold War conditions in the current era. But of course, the Cold War was fundamentally different than the hot war that we're having today. If you cannot tell the difference between a, a cold and a hot war, then you do need to go back to university <laughs> and, and, and examine you know, how international relations work. You have to remember that in the Cold War, there were very clear rules between the two sides. Many international relations experts talk about the Cold War as the long peace. Right? It was the long peace where you had essentially four decades of unprecedented peace within the European continent. It might have been a peace based upon deterrence and based upon the fact that neither side wanted to get annihilated, 
But there were no, you know, in Western Europe and in the European continent, the idea of a country invading another country and <laughs> the idea that that would spread elsewhere was never an issue. It's a very different era. If you want to use a historical analogy, don't use the historical analogy of the Cold War. A much more suitable analogy, and potentially with much more dangerous consequences, is the decade leading up to the Great World War, First World War. Because what happened at that time, if you will recall, was a situation where you had a very globalized economic system. World trade was growing all the time. Internationalization of capital was speeding ahead. And then suddenly, it all unraveled. And suddenly, what you saw was the beginning <coughs> of, a, of, a, of a kind of conflict, a series of conflicts, which would add and very painfully on the battlefields of the First World War. That's what occurred. And that is a much more dangerous situation. And the other reason why the anal analogy with that decade is so much more relevant to today than the Cold War analogy is simply because in 1910 or in 1908, nobody really knew who would be on what side. But if you recall your history, you will know it wasn't at all evident <coughs> until almost the outbreak of the war where Italy would be, you know, which side would Italy be with? It was very unclear at that particular time how this, the balance of power which had unraveled, at least temporarily, how that would play. Where would America be? You know, would America actually join in in, in that war? So in, in that moment, what you had was a really fluid global balance of power which took decades and decades to firm up and establish. And I think what we're seeing today also and this is to me the most important development that has occurred, is a very fluid balance of power situation itself. <clears throat> we have a, a situation where Germany is going to Saudi Arabia to get some oil, or, or Qatar. The Italians are going to Algeria to get supplies of petrol. You have a situation where all of a sudden, while there's a war going on in the Ukraine, you also have the beginnings of good old-fashioned economic war. And the one thing we know from our history is that whenever economic wars begin to gain momentum, it's only a matter of time before they become political conflicts, and then it's only a matter of time before economic wars become military ones, or potentially military ones. And that's really what we need to be really kind of worried about. So what I want to end on and, and argue is that Western solidarity, uh, while it looks good on paper, you know, you have Finland and Sweden uh, signing up to join NATO, which, by the way, is a mixed blessing for both Finland and Sweden, but that's a different story. So while on paper you have Western unity, what is also the case is that this solidarity is fundamentally limited by conflicting economic and political interests. And what I would expect to occur in the years ahead, and God knows this war might go on for years if the present dynamic and trajectory continues, what I would expect is the unraveling of the existing uh, compromises between Western powers and it uh, becoming much more, much more uh, unpredictable in the way that this issue kind of develops. I don't think that NATO is, looks as significant and as powerful as it is on paper, because what's interesting is that the contributions to the Ukrainians 
are not made by NATO. They're made by different national powers. And, you know, Britain, as, 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 uh, as was suggested, is one of them, who's actually done a, you know, made a pretty important contribution, and the United States. And of course, the local nations within East Europe, the Czech Republic, Poland, all these, all these republics have played a very, very important role. So we should be, uh, we should look under the surface of the West and their unity and understand that insofar as, uh, as, as, as they kind of play a role, it could be as much problematic as positive uh, in the immediate period. And in the, and in the medium and the long term, I am worried how about the unraveling of the West will distract, really distract from what's taking place within the Ukraine. because nobody knows what the hell it means. Um, but that's not, not the... When I was thinking about putting this uh, together, I thought about a meeting I had with the FBI in New York about three years ago, just before lockdown. And we weren't discussing geopolitics. We were discussing uh, street crime, uh, muscle, uh, corruption, buying off judges, buying off politicians, and all that kind of thing. And we had this this conversation. I said, but when does it get really serious? When do you actually move in with the SWAT teams? And they said unanimously, there were four guys here, and they said when somebody pulls out a gun, when the violence starts, when somebody gets killed. And in a way, that reminded me of the Godfather film. Do you remember that film, The Godfather? And Don Corleone didn't want to have a war because, with the other families because war was bad for business. <coughs> And we've got a little bit of that situation going on here, haven't we? Uh, Russia crossed a line. Nobody expected him to cross it because crossing that line would be bad for business. But this godfather had different priorities. And then here in the West, we immediately went into that narrative that we've been talking about here, good and evil, democracy and dictatorship. And then we started cleaning up all those little <coughs> things that should have been cleaned up years ago like rotten oligarch money, like where do we get our gas from, and all of that stuff. And we didn't do that, because until, some, until somebody pulls out a gun, people tend not to do things. And what we've learned from that, we just heard from Frank the um, First World War, there's the references to 1939, and the, or 1930s and the Second World War, and what we realise from this over the centuries is that Europe is probably the most savage continent in the world and human nature doesn't change. And we've got to accept that and we've got to get ahead of the game. And how do we do that? We do it by addressing the zombie factor. The zombie tenure of the West that's been going on now. Well, in the light, late 1980s, I was in Manila as the BBC correspondent. <coughs> there was glasnost and perestroika going on. Things were opening up. I was covering the end of the Marcos dictatorship. 
in Manila, and I was having a briefing with an American diplomat. And we were talking about the communist insurgency and the Muslim insurgency and democracy and all this sort of thing. And he looked at me like this. And he said, Humphrey, you just got to understand that inside every Filipino, there's an American who wants to get out and they want to taste freedom. Once they know that they want to taste freedom, then everything will be fine. I remembered that because I was a young reporter then. And that quote from that man followed me through Kosovo, Bosnia, Iraq, Libya, all of it. And if we just think of that element, oh, let's, let's just get rid of Saddam, let's just get rid of Assad, let's get rid of Gaddafi, let's get rid of Putin, and everything will be fine. That went on up until at least, what, 2012, 2013. And we still had up in the G20 summit, Boris wanted to do a D10, Democracy 10 thing, getting all these countries together, thinking, oh, well, the world would be fine if we get all these democracies together. So why has it taken the politicians so long to discard this word democracy or the West and work out how other people want to live. And I still don't think they know because Boris Johnson is off to India, I think, tomorrow. And he's going to be lecturing Narendra Modi about good and evil and he's going to be asking him to stop buying Russian arms and Russian oil and gas and all the rest of it. But why should India stop doing that? Because of Ukraine, food and fuel prices around the world have shot up, impacting the poorest countries in the developing world. Why should they risk their economies? Because of a faraway European war? And I should add yet another one, because Europe is always doing its wars. Why should they do that? But as we've been hearing, as the world divides, there will be more and more pressure to do that. And they will also be asked to support the rules-based international order. <coughs> that phrase that surrounds so much. And people will shake their heads. Whose rules? There's no shortage of examples of double standards. Iraq, Libya, Vietnam, Israel, Palestine, and so on. There's no need for me to repeat it to an audience like this. But from that situation, I see a slither of hope, a slither of a way forward that could come out of this mess that we're in. The UN Security Council is paralyzed because of the veto. The UN General Assembly is not. And as much as you've got anything, you have there a global parliament. It's got no power, like the European Parliament, but it's there. It's a voice. Now, Let's take two votes recently in that. There was the Ukraine vote a few weeks back uh, where 141 condemned Russia, 35 abstained, and Russia was only able to get five supporters like Syria uh, and North Korea. It was heralded as a great victory for the West, but I think if that zombie tinier listened a bit more closely, it was actually the world saying it doesn't like war, because it hurts people and it's bad for business. It was a message. Because back in 2019, the same UN General Assembly held a vote 
because of an international court ruling that said Britain did not have a claim to the sway of the Indian Ocean that it said it did. This is the Chagos Islands issue. That was taken to the UN General Assembly, and Britain lost that vote by a landslide. 116 condemned it, and six, only six, voted in favour. What did Britain do? Precisely nothing. It ignored the court ruling and it ignored the, the, um, the uh, General Assembly <coughs> vote. But at the same time, it was lambasting China for laying claim to the South China Sea. This is a glaring example of double standards that was democratically called out by the United Nations. And that system cannot be allowed to continue. It can't continue because the developing world has now got a much louder voice than it had during the Cold War, even at the end of the Cold War. Now, <coughs> the argument from Russia and China, these leaders of the authoritarian world, complain that they've been banging their heads against a brick wall for too long. And Russia, like my FBI briefer said, has drawn a gun and started killing people to shake up the system. <coughs> the West solution, I'm a member of the West, although I hate that word, is to arm Ukraine and sanction Russia. And in the short term, I back that because I think Ukraine must win this fight. But the West needs to get much smarter and it needs to listen much more carefully to this global opinion. Now we have a mix here of the 1930s, the rise of Hitler, and the rise of expansionist Japan, which was so heavily sanctioned by the United States that Japan decided it either had to give way and lose face or attack Pearl Harbor. And that ended in a nuclear war against Japan. That's why I say we have to get smarter, because history is repeating itself, and we should not let that happen again. Thank you. Spark of joy that might not have quite been it, but it was <laughs> nonetheless. I gave you a glimpse, didn't it was, I? No, but it was very, it's very important to have these things said. Delighted to reflect on that. Thank you. Um, I wanted to um, actually return to you, Nick. I'm going to go out to the audience very quickly, but I wanted to return to you, Nick, and, and fill in a way with something which Frank has introduced, which is I thought that you, Nick spoke inspiringly about some of what Western values represented and what perhaps had been forgotten. Um, but um, then in, in some ways, if it takes expression of NATO, uh, is that really problematic? But Frank then went on to basically talk about these as zombie, you know, the kind of Western values as almost zombie values. You know, what do they mean? And I think that Humphrey at the end also pointed out in a global context that sometimes, as we know, wars have been fought to impose democracy on places and <laughs> yeah. to kind of hold double standards thing. Doesn't, where are the real values there? And 
is something like sovereignty, which is something that I hold dear, I think is important and which has been squeezed by things like globalisation, embodied in the Ukraine situation. Is that just a zombie category that we can just dismiss? But anyway, any reflect on anything, well, basically. I mean, this is a metaphorical and actual minefield. And I think the other speakers have actually captured some really, really important points. I suppose when I was talking about, you know, democracy and freedom, I was talking about that in a sort of defensive sense. I mean, I've, I served in Iraq, and I know, and Tony Blair ought to know, that invasions have consequences. And imposing your set of values at the, uh, uh, through the barrel of a gun isn't uh, particularly on the basis of flawed intelligence isn't necessarily, you know, a great way to take the, take the world forward. So, and, and I'm also conscious of the fact that, um, you know, uh, certainly at the outset of this, although there seems to be, has been some relaxation, the sense that NATO could be a spoiler, you know, clearly the, 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 the fear that actually Western leaders have held since the outset is, uh, you know, helped by the fact that Putin continually warning us about the potential of, of, of a resort to, to nuclear weapons is, is, you know, this sense of where do you draw the line? You know, uh, it, w what is NATO's function here? And uh, I think effectively they're trying desperately uh, to, to, to make NATO effectively a defensive. And that's why, you know, Swede, the Swedes and the Finns, they've been looking at Russia for years and years and years. I mean, it's... You know, these guys aren't stupid. They've decided that this is sufficiently serious for them to change a policy that's decades, been decades and decades uh, in, in, in implementation. So, um, you know, uh, these guys are, you know, frankly, they're terrified. You know, they're terrified that they're going to be next. You know, and we have to ask ourselves, you know, where do we stand in all this? You know, we're not talking about imposing our values or, 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 as Humphrey quite rightly says, listening to what other people have to say. This is, this is um, you know, this is, this is existential. Uh, I mean, it, but, but boy, you know, it's tricky. And if, if people screw up, the consequences could be terrifying. Okay, thanks. Bill, any comment you just want to make on any of this? I'll stand up as well. But I think that, unfortunately... NATO has been stirring the pot for quite some time, and um, it, at least at the level of rhetoric, and it, you know, including uh, new countries within its remit, um, and then suggesting to Ukraine that it could uh, eventually one day become a member. Um, it, I think in terms of the values debate, it's quite interesting because, of course, you know, Frank touched on the fact that the United States has, at its heart, you know, that great line, you know, it's the land of the free. Yeah? The free market, freedom of expression, freedom of conscience, freedom of association. And that inspired a generation or more right across the globe. I mean, China, you know, Mao, you know, or, or, or Southeast Asia, they all wanted their freedom too. Now, unfortunately, it's the United States reneging on its own founding values and principles at the level of values, is one of the problems. It's not just economically in decline, but its own rhetoric is no longer there. It wants to be the land of the safe ever since 9-11. Um, safety has become the number one value that its citizens pursue, from vitamin pills to you know, clo you know, gated communities. Um, 
and you know the vulnerable individual has become the dominant and defining character of almost all Western politics since the end of the Cold War. It's that erosion of our own values. Um, it also means, by the way, the point I often make to my students, it doesn't mean that China's the future. China's the biggest economy, biggest population, biggest cities, most PhDs in science and technology of any other country on earth, maybe. Um, but what are its values that other people are going to be inspired by and want to buy into to transform the world in the next century? You know, just as Japan was the future when I was young, and no longer is, doesn't mean China's the future. Russia's definitely not the future. Very final point, what is you know, worth discussing is what's the exit strategy for Russia? I mean, I can't imagine anyone in the West now saying anything other than it will have to have its nuclear weapons removed at some point in the future. And that will keep stirring the pot up for quite some time. Okay, Frank, picking up on anything. Yeah, um, well, you wanted something positive. Yes. <laughs> and, and there are some positive elements in this. I think the most positive development, aside from the fact that we see people fighting for uh, their sovereignty and giving meaning to the struggle for self-determination, the most positive element is that the ideology of globalization has been exposed for what it is. That all of a sudden, you know, uh, these people in America and, and Britain and elsewhere who used to say that wars have become obsolete. Uh, I remember Tony Blair in a speech in 1997 talking about the fact that he, he's the first generation where he knows that he and his children will never have to go to war. And when you go through all the rhetoric that, that globalize, uh, the, the global eyes have put forward, democracies, democracies don't go to war with each other, if people are interested in economic development, they will become very peaceful and very liberal. I mean, if you go through them one by one, every element of, of that globalization uh, sort of ideology looks positively threadbare and, uh, and looks irrelevant. And what's come out of this, and this to me is a really positive development, is that for the first time in 50 years, 60 years, the idea of national sovereignty, which uh, inspired many of us in the Brexit debate here in Britain is beginning to gain traction because people realize that if you want to get vaccines, don't go to the World Health Organization. Don't go to these international in institutions. The United Nations isn't going to give you, you know, booster shots. That's not going to happen. You're going to have to rely on a nation state. And people begin to realize that actually a world where it's the nation states that run their affairs is far preferable to one where you've got these international NGOs with these busybodies, you know, sort of uh, putting their hands into every single thing that, that is really going on there. So for me, it's a really positive development for a very simple reason. Because once uh, national sovereignty is taken seriously, then popular sovereignty, which is really the foundation of democracy, can also begin to have some meaning. I think democracy for me is really quite important. It isn't just simply a rhetorical accomplishment, but at the moment, Democracy, lived democracy, is conspicuously very, very feeble. So for me, the unraveling of the world, albeit being very dangerous potentially, is a, is a positive uh, sort of moment where the, uh, the, the enlightenment impulses that kind of led to a world where the nation states and national sovereignty 
and democracy really meant something can begin to influence uh, sort of the discussion. And we can begin to, in a sense, in, you know, sort of put on the defensive all these globalist thinking individuals that run the BBC, that run the various cultural institutions that are really still powerful in the corridors of power because they think that they got more in common with people like them in other parts of the world than in their own people. Okay, anything you want to put up? No, I, I can give you something positive. Yeah, well, yeah. if you want. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, I, I, I'm an end of history guy. I, I do believe that, but we, we try to rush it too much. Um, so, uh, you know, you're going to have these bumps. But I was in, last week I was in um, Lithuania, and the two main opposition people for Belarus and for Russia are there in exile. And the guy, Lino Volkov, who is Navalny's thing, we sit down at a cafe, right? And he, and I go like this, and he stops me. And he says, no, I have to wipe it first because it could have Novichok on it. <laughs> and, and he's joking, right? And these people are modern and they're open <coughs> and they're democratic. But the Belarusian, Sviatlana, who's the Belarus, the wife of the Belarus leader, Sergei, who's, who's in jail now. And she's a housewife. And she's got this office around her. She's got a lot of security. And she said, I said, what's going to happen? Is it suddenly going to happen? You're going to become president? She said, she said, no. So we all have to learn to live in a democracy. 27 years of a dictatorship, and you never have to take responsibility for anything. In a democracy, you all have to take responsibility for what happens. And we don't know that. That takes time to teach. And in all our places, Iraq, Libya, Russia even, you know, we haven't given the time to teach it. So you get the back, backlash. So I'm, I'm of the view that 100 years from now, when other people are in this room, there will be uh, a form of government accountability that's not around. I hate this word, democracy, in all these places that are now dictatorships. OK, thank you. Now, um, despite the fact that I wanted cheering up, you don't have to be... It's not, it's not a therapy session. So feel free to be as uh, brutally honest uh, as you want. I'm going to take uh, groups of three or four uh, and then come back to the, uh, to the audience. Okay, so that gentleman now is the person I saw first. Thank you. Uh, the name's Ewan Grant. I'm a former law enforcement intelligence analyst who worked with um, the border guards and the state security in Ukraine uh, just after the Orange Revolution and also just after the Maidan. I've seen, thank you for all your comments, because I have seen firsthand the very serious failings of the collective European Union, and particularly of Germany. Some truly disgraceful behavior that has given a green light. My um, question for you all is, uh, based on Humphrey Hawksley's point about the need to get smarter, and, and I urge people to read his novels because they're textbooks, not, not just novels. Do you see any particular signs in the Anglosphere, and particularly um, in France and Germany, that might be asking a lot, of getting smarter in seeking to preempt potential Russian moves and to be ready for the long term. I would just add, regarding textbooks, there's another novel which really class goes in that class, 
uh, the very last Tom Clancy book written in his lifetime uh, called Command Authority. Uh, and I think people should read that. It is absolutely uncanny. So any signs of smartness and preparation on a joined-up basis. Thank you. Thank you very much. We'd like a bit of literary uh, uh, recommendations at the Academy of Ideas. That's very good. I was uh, interested. Uh, it seemed like uh, we had uh, two concepts of the West um, uh, since it was uh, uh, in, in the title. And one is um, of a, like a democracy and national liberation and um, uh, uh, rights uh, and the, the long trajectory of, you know, from the 18th century and before of uh, uh, popular sovereignty. But the other seems uh, just as um, um, real, which is a kind of degenerate, decadent, uh, warlike, imperialistic, destructive, uh, 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 the, the kind of thing that we've seen you know, consolidated in um, uh, the European Union, uh, if you want a uh, kind of hate figure, but also in a uh, relatively apolitical uh, mode of governance uh, where experts decide things uh, and uh, war is kind of excluded uh, to the periphery. Um, and uh, in the context of this war, um, I, I'm not confident that, that it leads to the clarification that you would hope, you know, which West is winning um, you know, I was kind of hoping it would be national sovereignty and independence and freedom. But um, you know, when I, I know I know this is a bit Anglo-centric and weird. But um, you know, when I see the people for whom this is a, a powerful issue that are moved by it, apart from Ukrainians in Britain are obviously uh, fabulous people. Uh, there's a lot of people for whom it's what they see is is a, a, a European Union victory or a, a, a NATO victory or a Biden victory. Uh, in the Ukraine, uh, and that doesn't seem like it's quite the clarifying kind of a principle that uh, you might have hoped for in terms of the, um, uh, you know, uh, what the importance, the salience of this issue of the, the contest over Ukraine was going to uh, work itself out as. I think, I think that's a very interesting question, isn't it? And also there's been some confusion because when you've got somebody like Zelensky, um, who then says, yes, we want to join NATO and the EU, and um, yes, I'd rather Macron won in France, and um, et cetera, et cetera. You then think, you know, and, and then is espoused as, a, as the hero that will save globalisation and get rid of all these nasty populists. Then that's a different kind of turn to the inspiring Ukrainian fight for self-determination. So I think that is an interesting... Um, tension that's going on, let's put it that way. Well, I was hoping to cheer people up a bit because surely over the last 56 days, what we've really seen is the bravery, the courage, and the determination of a nation. And surely that's inspiring. And it's inspiring for a reason, which is that the Ukrainian people look to the West. And they do so because they see in the West freedom and democracy. And that's what they aspire to be, a free democratic nation. They want to join the Club of the West, and all, all power to them, because I, I think we see there uh, the, the seeds of the future. We see in their courage the fact that they believe in our free societies. And I don't think we should dismiss that, because the other thing that surely become apparent over the last 56 days is not just the, the moral strength of the Ukrainian people, 
but also their technological superiority as a result of having access to Western weaponry. And that also isn't a, uh, by accident. That is because if you have free societies that celebrate innovation and the free market, then you will always have technological superiority over clapped out Russian tanks and other weaponry. So in that regard, the future is surely quite bright. And yes, you do see splits within the world, but you see the formation, I think, of two different blocks. You see a free West, and then you see an unfree East, and no one's quite too sure where India and some other nations are going to go. But I don't have a problem with that. If that's the way the world is going to divide, then I don't see why it can't actually do as the previous Cold War did, which, which did, as Frank said, did enable the West to actually celebrate the essential values of, of, of capitalism, of the free market, and of, the, and of democratic society. So I actually think the last 56 days have been very inspiring for those of us who do believe in all of those things. Okay, thank you. Uh, it's ironical, I think, that it was Prince, sorry, Tsarina Alexandra, wife of Nicholas, at the time of the Crimean War, famous for the charge of the Light Brigade, who pointed out then, for the first time, because it hadn't really been dawned on people, the horrors of industrial war. And I just thought there's an irony there that she was Russian. Second point is, if we go back 60 years, my father, before that, had fought in the Second World War as a naval officer, and my mother was expecting my second sister, so she had me, which was pretty terrible, and she needed some help. And so they uh, brought over a German au pair girl. My father thought, rightly, I think, that then we had been at war with Germany, but there's no reason why we shouldn't be friends with Germans now. And it, it was just about this time of year, April the 22nd, my mother's birthday, and we all went off to the pub, sat outside because kids couldn't go in in those days, and my father proposed a toast to wish my mother a happy birthday. And then Helga, who was the German au pair girl, said, can I propose a toast? And he said, yes, of course. She said, I would like to propose a toast to Adolf Hitler, whose birthday is tomorrow. <laughs> And so my father said, well, look, I've just spent four years um, trying to defeat Hitler, and I really don't want to drink to him now, thank you very much. So this faux pas was sort of glossed over, and dear Helga became a lifelong family friend and, and, and godmother to my younger sister. Anyway, wind forward... Winding forward quickly. 25 years, quickly, and my son was decided to study German. And he, we did an exchange with a German student. And this boy came over and stayed with our family. And he was very articulate, spoke much better English than my son spoke German. And um, I asked him one day, I said, what do German people think of the Second World War now? This is from a 13-year-old. And he said, oh, we're deeply ashamed of what our grandparents did. And I'm determined that such a thing should never happen again. So... If you liken the uh, offence that Putin is causing similar to the offence, and I'm not trying to say they're identical, but there are, must be similarities there of going and invading a neighbouring nation, 
um, is there hope that if the Russian people, in our world of communication that we say is so marvellous, but has been cut off, if the Russians could just realise what's happen, happening to Ukrainian cities, will the tide turn? And is that not an approach we should be trying to take? Because you know, it would end it. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, yes. Um, just to pick up on what John was saying at the front here, I mean, I'm similarly inspired as you are by the, the, the courage and the, uh, the resilience of the Ukrainian people, uh, but I don't share your positive uh, interpretation of that, that this uh, example uh, could lead to the positive rekindling of uh, Western values around, around a new Cold War. I mean, I think Frank explained the, the, the sort of objective differences between today and that last period, and I think... Nevertheless, the, the attempts that are being made to, uh, by the Americans and others to try and rekindle that Cold War is one of those situations which, uh, you know, when you try to reprise a positive experience in the past, it generally uh, 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 falls flat or recurs as whatever is tragedy and, and, and farce in some ways. I mean, w just explaining that, one of the things that Frank mentioned was how the, quickly the ideology of... Uh, of globalism has been under, uh, has been sort of discredited. But the thing that struck me as part of that is how quickly globalist thinkers and politicians and economists and commentators and so on have, ha have themselves drawn that conclusion that, that those old ways were not quite as they saw them. So the ways in which, uh, you know, quite recent, you know, globalist politicians like Macron or Biden or whoever are openly espousing sort of protectionism and self-sufficiency or high uh, international organizations like yesterday's International Monetary Fund report worth looking at, high organizations which espouse international cooperation and this great world order are, have normalized their understanding that economic fragmentation is the order of the day. So very quickly they've, these commentators have begun to see how things are different. Now one example at which, at which I think shows the dangers in this was a speech given last week um, by Janet Yellen, U.S. Uh, 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 Secretary, Treasury Secretary, which very uh, explicitly uh, argued that the old ways of organizing trade uh, were no longer viable, that what we needed, and she used this term, which I think sums it up, where she talks about the need for friend-shoring. Uh, it's not reshoring or you know, inshoring, but we can only really reshore with friends of ours, with trusted parties. And she explicitly... Um, sort of linked trade and international economic relations with politics and said we can't keep the two separate anymore. Who we should be trading with is not the whole world order, but people that we can, the term she used, what we can count on. And she's basically, I think, articulating the idea it'd be nice to get back to that world where we have this division. I mean, she didn't say, I want to see uh, a bipolar world, but she said, you know, that may well be the outcome of this because if China's not going to side with our values, if it's not going to be one of our trusted parties, then they're going to be on the other side. And she said, this is the time that people have to choose sides, uh, whether she's referring to the 35 who abstained at the UN or more broadly, she's saying people have to take sides in this. Uh, but I think this attempt has finished of trying to recreate a division in which the Americans present themselves as the land of the free and standing up for freedom and free trade and secure trade and so on, that that is something which itself will become very disturbing for that order and therefore will reinforce that unravelling that Frank talked about. Okay, thank you. So I'm just going to whiz across the panel. Can I just point out that we haven't got a bar on women speaking, um, uh, so do feel free. Uh, also, Jacob, 
Uh, we'll kind of, there's, a, there's quite a lot of hands at the back that I didn't take, and he'll kind of come back and pass it along. Anyway, Humphrey. Uh, there's so much there. I, I, I don't really have, have much to say, but I, I agree with you. On that, it is going to consolidate, but I, but I completely disagree over here because it's a different world. And when we talk about a new Cold War, which is an easy phrase, it was very hot in a lot of places that war. So yes, it kept the peace in Europe. So now I just wonder if Russia and China, if Asia is rising, is they going to have a series of proxy wars in Europe, whilst Asia just keeps going and makes money? I just wanted to come back on Phil's point about friendshoring, actually, because I'm not convinced you can presume who your friends are, um, you know, even internally in the United States, let alone across borders. Um, I mean, there's a whole story about, you know, Marconi being the Huawei of its day around the time of the First World War and the problems that that created for, you know, the Internet of its day in terms of purchasing it from someone who was a member of the Triple Alliance in the, in the First World War. Um, so I don't think, you know, as Frank, I think, alluded to, that's necessarily evident. I just wanted to finish on one thing, uh, the kind of very radical community that I'm a part of, LinkedIn, um, not <laughs> which is the only social media I, I happen to engage in for my sins. And it, it, there are more, maybe it's just the feedback that I'm getting because of the people I'm connected to, but, you know, there are more and more people talking about the need to decapitate your own leader. Not in those words, by the way. Um, but, you know, the, the, the real problem is our own leaders everywhere. You know, Russia's problem is their own leaders. Britain's problem is, you know, and I don't know how prevalent or, you know, but that ultimately is the struggle that we have to be part of because there's, there's a limitation to what we can do for Ukraine. But we are here and we can, you know, set a different agenda as best as we can. I d in terms of positive things, I do think the Canadian truckers were the most positive thing I saw for a very, very long time. Um, as well as arming the people in the Ukraine. Okay, right, thank you. Um, okay. Um, very quickly then, um, uh, you and... Uh, uh, is there any evidence of the West being smarter? Well, I think on intelligence, the US and UK were pretty smart about how they used intelligence ahead of the, ahead of the invasion. Um, unfortunately for the Germans, the head of their intelligence service was caught out in the Ukraine when it actually happened, which is slightly embarrassing. And the French head of the military intelligence service was sacked, I think, as far as I'm aware. So it's about a mixed picture. Um, James, the West, you know, principled versus degenerate. I mean, that's a really good question. We don't know the answer yet. It's, it's still panning out. I think that's one of the reasons why Putin chose his moment. It was a moment of maximum leverage in terms of de energy dependency before we move far more to renewables. Um, and uh, he felt now was his, his time. And um, given the, the difficulties going on with Germany in particular, um, he may have been right. So again, that's, that's, that's not clear. Um, I, I also agree that, that Ukraine has been something of an inspiration. Um, and, you know, it's legitimate insofar as they've made an expression of intent that flies in the face of Putin's rather grand design about a unification of the, of the Russian people, and we should respect that. Um, uh, will the Russian people rise up against Putin? Who knows? But certainly, I think Western leaders are incredibly cautious about moving to the next phase and saying... Let's, let's make this Cold War too. Let's take down those filthy, rotten, commie successors. Uh, I mean, I think they're very nervous that that could trigger World War III and a possible nuclear conflagration. Um, 
and um, you know, are we try you know, and, and more generally on globalization. It isn't just this; it's COVID and supply chains, um, and and net zero and energy supplies. All of those things are triggering a fundamental rethink about whether you should put all your eggs in one supply basket, like China, for example. Okay, thanks, Frank. Yeah, I mean, we haven't we haven't got time to actually situate the war properly because what's happening in the Ukraine intertwines with what happened during the pandemic. And there's been a very long process of, of, of the world unraveling and, and, the, and the old rules seeming to have been rejected by new realities. I think Phil is absolutely right about the fickleness of the globalized elites. I mean, when you have someone like Fukuyama basically declaring the importance of the nation state and giving a speech which basically uh, sort of, uh, call, uh, although he would never say this, calls into question his whole end of history thesis, uh, you begin to realize that there's an uh, indecent haste with which kind of positions are being changed. In Washington now, there's a big discussion about reviving the old policy of containment, uh, but in a new form. So poor old you know, George Kennan, the sort of policy is, is being kind of updated, which I don't think is particularly smart in the 21st century, nor is it particularly smart when you have that you know, Joe Biden basically declaring that we are now moving into a new world order. Right? The last time somebody talked about new world order, you will recall, was President Bush after the 9-11 crisis. You know, sort of, and look what happened to that new world order. And I think you know, what, what, what Biden is doing is not only saying there's going to be a new world order, he's saying that it will be under American leadership. So basically what he's saying is that you know, he's got this kind of uh, immature fantasy that the old Cold War American hegemony can be revived literally at the expense of Ukraine. And that's what we're really seeing here. And I myself, I am really worried about the recreation of a bipolar world because there is no basis for a bipolar world anymore. Right? The bipolar world was, 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 you know, needed a Soviet Union and it needed the United States that was a hegemonic power. Today, we have a, a multipolar world, uh, by all accounts. It's not possible to have uh, uh, anything other than regional blocks being established. And as I count the regional blocks, I can think of at least three of them in economic terms that are going to vie with each other. So if that becomes politicized in the way that the situation is at the moment, that will not be uh, a positive development. So I think we need to be aware of this. And just one final point. The precondition for uh, the British Foreign Office or the State Department in America to think smartly is to develop the capacity for long-term thinking, for long-term strategic thinking. And at the moment, the people that inhabit these institutions are conspicuously short-termists. I think this is the really big problem because what happens is that in the West, these uh, institutions only think in the language of tactics, but not strategically. And smartness and strategy go, go together. And, and strategy is something you cannot invent you know, just like that from a, a brainstorming session. Strategy has got to emerge from a, a proper public deliberation and debate. Okay, thanks. Um, well, Nick said that it was, I think you said it was inevitable that the Minsk agreements would kind of fall apart. And I wondered why you thought that was. 
And to take a step back about how we got here, because I know that many people in the room um, want to sort of say rah rah, and I actually really admire and respect anyone that will fight for their own independence and freedom. But I am very concerned as well about some of the discussions that have led up to this around cheerleading NATO, some of the role that NATO's played. I, I welcome Bill's comments about NATO not being the solution and Frank also saying that there's geopolitical illiteracy because it seems to me that the guy that pulled the gun out, we could look at some of the shellings in the Donbass, we could look at some of the things that led up to the situation that then led someone to make a choice, wrong choice, to invade another country. But I don't think there's been enough discussion about that in this. Um, I know we're here now, and that leads to the next question about whether Western unity really represents sovereignty and democracy and freedom and what it is that we could do for it. I mean, it seems to me that you can admire and respect and welcome Ukrainian citizens getting arms from wherever they can and fighting, and you can support them whichever way you can. But ultimately, the thing you can do is what you can do in your own country. You might choose to go there and fight. That might be a choice. But also it's about what you do here and now. And it does concern me that some of the cheerleading of the militarism will lead to the tensions that people have talked about between the West. It exacerbates some of that. Uh, and also, in terms of strategy, I would argue that peace is always a better formulation. And perhaps the idea of solidarity is that we put as much pressure on our leaders to try and achieve that and have diplomacy and talks and win those arguments over. Um, that would be, uh, I think, the, the independent sort of democratic thing to do. Okay, thank you. Um, I noticed that I think most of the speakers, and particularly Bill, talked about the role of the United States uh, in all of this. And I, I wonder if I could ask uh, all of you to uh, elaborate your ideas about the future role of America. Because um, there is an argument that says that America is disengaging from NATO, partly because there's no ideological enemy anymore in a way that the, there was in the Soviet period, and partly because it's too costly. I mean, Donald Trump emphasized repeatedly that uh, America's bearing too much of the cost of NATO. And um, considering that, in, in, in connecting that thought to the fact that in the Second World War, early on, I think it's true that Churchill found it pretty difficult to persuade America to get involved, and it took the attack on Pearl Harbor uh, to get involved properly. So with that in mind, I can imagine America thinking now, Look, we sympathize with Ukraine, but Europe is basically not our problem. Why should we get involved in European wars? There's no threat of Putin bombing America, unless, of course, America gets involved first in supporting Ukraine. Uh, why should it? And that, from a purely the point of um, realism, if you like, that's going to be a perfectly good question, especially given the fact that Donald Trump may well be re-elected in 2024, and his attitude to Vladimir Putin is, at best, ambivalent. If America does withdraw from NATO, if indeed NATO more or less collapses, the question now we're going to have to face is, well, wh on what basis do we support Ukrainians? Do we say we can't? And after all, there is a tradition in just war theory that says you shouldn't fight an unwinnable war. So we might say, look, I mean, it's a terrible thing that's happening in Ukraine, but we shouldn't fight this because we can't win, or if we can win, the cost will be too great, and it could actually escalate into a nuclear attack, as, as Putin's just threatened again today. So... Um, that's one view you could take. The other view might be a more optimistic one, which I think was mentioned um, from the moment the front, that we might actually get revivified in a sense of compassion and common humanity and a humanitarian motive. We just look at what's happening in Ukraine and think this is simply an outrage. Uh, people who are just like us ten, um, tw you know, eight weeks ago, getting on with their lives, are now starving to death in basements in Mariupol. 
we've got to do something about it, and we mustn't think too much of the cost. Then the question is, on what basis do this? Is it humanitarian? Is it because we have some sort of ideological commitment, though I don't know what it would be, or is it that we have to th ask ourselves, not just what is the West, as Frank did, and what does it stand for, but who is the West? Is Lithuania the West? Is Latvia the West? What about Poland? Putin could have his sights on Poland. They were all part of the Soviet bloc, in some way thinking they're, they're basically the East. They're not like us, especially the way politics are going in places like Poland and Hungary. So these are all scattered thoughts, but I just wonder, you know, given the possible decline of America, what our base is going to be for for acting in this situation? Some, some really useful questions, and there's no way that the panellists are going to be able to deal with them all, but I think these are the, exactly the kind of questions that we need to be asking, talking about challenges that we've had at the back. I mean, is there, there hasn't been much conversation here about whether an option would be that we should be pursuing peace at all costs. And I do know that there are people suggesting that you know, you fight till the last Ukrainian falls, is a, you know, if I was depressed before, that's not a cheerful thought, right? That, that actually, that maybe this is leading to more of a bloodbath. I'm, I'm raising these things not because I think them, but because I think they're the kind of things that people are worrying about, and I just want to encourage you to, to carry on asking those questions. But Jacob, can you, oh, we've got somebody, right, yes, yeah. Yeah, actually my question is about entertaining just my thought. Um, it's, it's almost like a stupid, thought like a really simple one but we're here to talk about the west and it seems clear to me that ukraine is on the edge of the west physically literally and it and it seems like the edge the wet the, the west is fraying at the edges right um you think about other outposts of the west like hong kong it's, it's literally dissolving it's being rubbed off the western map um and at the beginning of all this i was quite bullish i was like yeah go on boris man give him weapons fight and like the longer it goes on, you know, Frank spoke about how the West is is weak; it doesn't know what it's about. And surely, if we're weak and we're falling apart, are we surprised that the West is fraying at the edges? And I wish I was as confident and as bullish as the man up front in his definition of the West and its future and its purpose and its philosophy. Um, but we're at the stage of the conflict now, where the sort of leaders are competitively bidding to put weapons up. You know. Boris is giving this, he's giving this, he's giving that. And we just, it seems to me, we're throwing weapons at a region of the world where we don't know what's going to come of it. And maybe our bullishness and our confidence in the West, we're actually making it worse. We heard about our ugly bedfellows earlier. We threw weapons at the Mujahideen and ended up being shot with those very weapons. Uh, I'm not saying you, that you're talking about the Taliban when you're talking about ugly bedfellows, they're more Western ones. Um, but yeah, my, it's actually a question. Is my sort of self-doubt in all of this justified? Am I the Germany of this conversation, sort of standing back, scratching my head? Are we doing the right thing? Uh, am I a Putin stooge? I don't know. I certainly wasn't at the beginning, but I, am I going that way? Am I the re is it bad that I'm backing off? Am I losing faith? I'm not a determinist equally that's saying, you know, the West is falling apart, we, that we have no agency in any of this. But that doubt is troubling me and um, we're just throwing weapons at this region of the world and we're, we don't know what's going to happen and we're making it worse um, as, a, as the West, whatever that means. Um, so that is a question. Um, is that doubt justified? I, I think I, I'd like to really commend that contribution because I think it's ha how a lot of people feel that I've talked to. There's a certain amount of war weariness. People have said things like, I'm fed of party gate. 
what about the cost of living crisis? And I'm actually fed up with the war. You know what I mean? Like, there's a kind of like, it's not our war, is it? So I, I think there's a, there's an honest bit there, which is, is it, you know, like you say, gung-ho at the beginning, then like, oh, this is dragging on a bit. Do you know what I mean? And what for? So I think those kind of honest questions, very important. Yes. Um, I was just saying, I came here to hear about the peace and how the, the peace was going to be won. And I, I'm very, it's very depressing, the whole talk about, you know, war and where, where is it ever going to end and so on. Uh, I, as far as I'm concerned, I mean, I'm very anti-war, in, in as everybody is, of course. And uh, I can't quite understand why it's giving all these weapons to Ukraine. I know that Zelensky is asking for them, but they're just getting bombed to pieces. How can that be a good thing? The country is being destroyed. So surely we have to find the peace in whatever way possible. This man was talking about Germany. I mean, what was the point of all this war with Germany? Straight away, we're shaking their hands. We're best friends with them. Come over here. Be my au pair. You know, let's stop the war. Let's get the intelligence going. Let's make friends with Russia and stop this nonsense. That's the way I see it. I mean, what is the point? They're, they're carrying on bombing the country to absolute smithereens. People are being killed. You know, there has to be a stop. There has to be a peace. We haven't heard anything about where the peace negotiations are going, what is happening. We're not hearing enough of that. That's what I'm thinking. Okay, thank you. Um, and then I've got... I, I don't know if I'm a bit perverse, but I started off thinking it was all so complicated. And as, as it's gone on, it seems in some ways to be simpler to me. On the thing about um, it, if you believe in national sovereignty and you think that the Ukrainian people are fighting for that, which I believe that they are, it's not a case of the West is flinging weapons willy-nilly. When I say the West, the, you know, I mean Britain, for, let's just stick with Britain. We're not flinging weapons willy-nilly. They're being requested by a people who, whatever the state of Ukrainian society and democracy may have been, thought that that society was worth fighting for and fighting very bitterly and very bravely. Um, and so if you support that, then we support it. If they decide at some point that they want to stop and um, enter peace negotiations with Russia, then it would be our job to show solidarity by facilitating that decision, if that's what we chose to do. So for me, that seems fairly simple. Um, that might be a bit naive, I'm not sure. But anyway, the question I wanted to ask all of you really was, Frank, you started off in your initial um, introduction by saying that the, the peace in Europe for a long while was predicated on the hegemon of, uh, of America and a, a negative alternative, the Soviet Union. So that's sort of macro level, but what I would quite like to know is how you see, I think it's been touched on, but to perhaps make it more explicit, how you see that balance of power at that level working out at a national level, at the level of national sovereignty and democracy because it seems to me, if, if we're thinking about how to go forward, we can't, and I agree with the people that are, that are sceptical of trying to revive any kind of supranational body, whether it's NATO or the United Nations General Assembly. It seems to me that that's kind of going about it the wrong way. You're trying to create a unity from outside rather than from within. And so it seems to me the question of national, national sovereignty and the democracy is logically and chronologically the prior one to solving anything on an international stage, which is why I'd like your thoughts on that relationship at macro and the national democracy. 
Thanks. Um, I haven't found the discussion depressing at all. I'd like to thank you all for your comments. Um, it's been very clarifying. Um, I suppose what I wanted to ask, given um, the points that you've made about the West, is what degree of significance would you attach to what's happening in Ukraine itself to what you're describing? Um, so what I mean by this is that clearly what the Ukrainians have done is extremely significant in that what it can do is give us a focus and an understanding and a, in a very real way um, an inspiration when we think about what it means to uphold um, striving for freedom and striving for um, living your life the way you feel that you need to live it. Um, and that throws into relief um, the problems that we've got in the absence of that elsewhere. So that aspect of Ukraine I can see is incredibly significant because out of nowhere and to me completely surprisingly, these people have done this, um, which has to me has just been a, 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 a brilliant thing. I, I couldn't agree less with what the lady over there had to say. But my point is, is that if it wasn't Ukraine in relation to the wider issues that you've been talking about, would it just be something else? So in other words, are these larger questions that have been raised about the meaninglessness of the West, um, the problems of international relations, the difficulties created by a multipolar world, is all that's really happening now that those are just being sharply thrown into relief because this particular conflict is happening? But in a way, the question was, you know, when, not, when and how, not if, that this would be happening in some form, in some way, even if Russia hadn't invaded Ukraine. Is that a correct way of, of thinking about all of this? And if that's right, then basically we just need to recognise it, don't we? It's a huge wake-up call. That's what Ukraine is. And we need to really start to get to grips with th the larger dynamics. Okay, I'm, I'm going to just whiz across the panel, but I'm going to take everyone who's got their hands up. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Already in the pandemic, this was very, very clear. It just so happened that Ukraine became the, the, the point of crystallization. I just want to say one very simple thing. It, we, are, we live in a world that's not of our own making, and we have actors in the global sphere who are not particularly attractive. I have no time for NATO and I've got no time for the so-called West because I think that they are behaving in a very self-serving and cowardly manner. I think that giving out guns and, 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 and weapons is, is, is what they've been doing everywhere from Afghanistan to Libya to Syria. Just give guns away while they watch things you know, on, the, on their digital you know, sort of platform. So I think there's a big problem there. But the idea that was raised in the back, that somehow there's a danger of militarism, and everybody's talking about militarism, means that you are watching a different media than I'm watching. Because what I find to be quite compelling is that in the middle of a very important war, everybody's, everybody's walk, uh, talking about the danger of escalating, the danger that we must you know, so be careful and be wary of what's really going on. And the, the last thing that I find uh, between Western societies is any kind of uh, willingness to kind of commit to any degree of sacrifice. People make fun of those British people that go to Ukraine. You know, just today, there was this, uh, uh, those people called idiots in one of the newspapers for going to fight within the Ukraine, as if somehow they're lower forms of human beings. 
so putting their bodies on the line. So what I find is very powerful at the moment is a, is a palpable sense of appeasement. Because all you've got to say is that the Russians have got nuclear weapons. They can blackmail us as much as they want because they've got nuclear weapons. And therefore, any attempt to do anything a little bit more uh, uh, ambitious, you cannot do that because the Russians have got nuclear weapons. So you've got this crazy idea where people are saying, we must be careful not to escalate. We must be careful not to escalate. But who's escalating? I mean, who's escalated conflict in this war? You know, was it New Zealand, right? You know, you know, was it Switzerland? It wasn't. Who's escalating are the Russians who went in there and, and invaded another country. So the idea becomes very simple. It's a bit like saying if somebody pulls a gun at you, right, puts the gun against your head, and you try to take it away from them, you're escalating the conflict. Uh, that's really what we're saying here. You're escalating the conflict because you could very simply fold your arms and say, I'm going to be your slave. Because right? that's the alternative. You either basically say that you support enslaving a nation because of the threat of, of a nuclear war, or alternatively, you basically stand up and fight. Okay. And the Ukrainians are doing this, and I think we should understand how important that is. And they're setting an example which I wish that some of us here in this country and other Western society would see as an inspiration rather than something that's alien to their very core. Um, yeah, I, I, I kind of agree with a lot of what Frank has said. You know, the, um, on the Minsk, uh, Minsk Accord point, I mean, I think fundamentally, please someone in the audience correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that the reason they were mutually incompatible, I think, is that the Ukrainians may have been prepared to contemplate a degree of autonomy within a sovereign Ukraine, whereas I think the Russians saw uh, Luhansk and Donetsk as, if you like, a way to backseat drive Ukraine. Uh, and those are two fundamentally different things, a bit like the um, Irish uh, uh, backstop arrangement. Um, <clears throat> I can see Kevin in the back there. Uh, secondly, yes, I mean, war is terrible. I've, I've served in about four conflict zones, you know, peace has to be the objective, but peace at what price? You know, people are being <clears throat> bombed, killed, uh, slaughtered. If they're, if they're taken out, they're being shipped to God knows where in Russia. This is pretty uh, terrifying stuff. Uh, but I note that despite all the shit that's going down, Zelensky has from the outset tried to keep talks going. You know, people, you know, there, there has to be some way of, of, of coming to the negotiating table. You know, we can't fight this war forever. And, and, and people are right to be... Cons I mean, you know, I, I, I'm with Frank on the kind of... But, but, you know, this isn't a game of jolly hockey sticks and a bidding war. And uh, if the Germans have produced a tank, we're going to produce uh, three tanks. Uh, it's got to be more uh, uh, nuanced and carefully managed than that. And one hopes that the West... Is, is, is on top of that kind of stuff. Okay, thanks. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I take Ellie's point. I think, you know, the, the war in Ukraine is an expression of a problem. It's not the problem. Um, and then to pick up on Pierre's question, what's the role of the US in all this? Well, I made it clear, I think, American decline, managing American decline. Maybe I'm overstating it. I don't know. There's a, there's a debate to be had along the lines of what James introduced about, you know, the how barbaric the West is, as well as the ideal of the West. America represents, in my mind, everything that's best about humanity at the same time as some of the worst. And, you know, 
the future's still there to be played for. Maybe we're too cynical when we think only in terms of its decline because it still has much of what is the best that people aspire to, that Islamists, maybe, you know, before Ukrainians <coughs> aspiring to Western values, Islamists wearing Chicago Bull T-shirts would always prefer to have a green card, that, you know, in many instances, than, than anything else. Um, we have to save our own values. You know, and in terms of who the peacemakers are, to the question that was asked over, surely we want peace, we're going to have to make the peace by fighting for and defending what we think of as our values, which are the ideals of the West, if not the actuality of it. I'll answer that directly. Uh, people don't concede ground on a negotiating table that they think they can win on the battlefield. And that's why there's no reform. On it. But, but um, yeah, I mean, this is such a great discussion, and, um, and my mind is everywhere. But I'd just like to address a couple of points. One is this idea of America and the West. America is the smartest and the most powerful, and it leads a coalition that runs the world. There's been plenty of time, at least 30 years, for other regions or other coalitions to come about, and they haven't come about. In Asia, Japan and South Korea are at loggerheads. Uh, there's no NATO beginning out there or anything like that. I've been in, as I said, I was in the Baltic States last week. They were terrified in 1991 that they would not be allowed to join NATO quickly enough. They were told by the West that they couldn't because they wanted Gorbachev and his system to run. They wanted the Soviet Union to run and then become a democracy. And they pushed and they pushed and they pushed until they got in. Uh, so there is a real thinking amongst those countries that NATO is a good thing, despite everything else we say. And I just want to tackle this issue of democracy and the way that it's run. It's really you and Grant's question. No, we can't get smarter until we change the system, and God knows how to change it. If you are the mayor or running for the mayor of Srebrenica, the town where there was that last massacre in Britain, and you recognize that there was a massacre and you visit the cemetery, you will not get voted into office. If you are in Uganda and you want gay rights, you will not get voted into office. So either you have democracy or you have our values. And that is this uh, contradiction that I don't think that we're going to solve very quickly, but when you get a, you talked about leaders coming in. Autocracies throw up certain types of leaders. Democracies in the past 20 years have thrown up some very strange kind of leaders because through social media, because through media and all that, the issues that get those people voted in are not the issues that we're discussing today. Well, democracy needs to be fought for from below, not imposed from above. And that, <laughs> I mean, and that's the, uh, I suppose that's the thing that we are uh, really having to reckon with. And, you know, I mean, I don't know. I mean, at the beginning of the war, there were quite a lot of articles published with the same titles, with, title, which were all quite good. They were called Ukraine is not all about you. Um, and it was about the way in which commentators were trying to kind of just put their own you know, preconceptions onto what was happening. Um, I sort of feel like there needs to be some that now say why it is about us, because what you were saying, Claire, about the, the war weariness, it's all got to seem quite abstract to me. People aren't talking about it. You know, they're talking about their electricity bills, you know, the sun coming out, you know, but they're not talking about it like they talked about Brexit or COVID or whatever. There, there's that sort of sense of it's, it seems to have now gone into that pattern that we've all been very familiar with.
for the past several years of the media political class talking about stuff, yet headlines and headlines and headlines, but it all seems rather abstract and detached. Um, which leads me to my kind of question for Frank, I suppose, which is when you, you said that the good thing about this is it's exposed the, the limits of globalization and the need of the nation for the nation state. And I, I think that's true on one level, but on the, the other level, <laughs> Bill mentioned this ongoing discussion where it seems that some would, you know, just rather do anything to get rid of their own government, you know, to have a go at the government. That that's all more important. That sense of well, we've got to um, just kind of criticise our own countries all the time, um, and that sort of sense of there there being this gap between the the globalist elite, which is still happening, and those conversations that are happening within them, and the sense of there not being very much interest amongst the political elites about what's what's in the national interest, what people in their countries think. And then that real sense of detachment and cynicism from everybody else who are just sort of knackered, not least by the events of the past couple of years. So I'm finding it a bit dispiriting at the moment, and I think it's definitely changed in, in tempo since the, the, the whole thing kicked off. People might not be talking about it, but every town centre you go to, there are Ukrainian flags everywhere. The um, gay flag has come down, the EU flag has come down, and everywhere is yellow and uh, blue. Um, and I do, I, you know, I don't think people who want to sacrifice their lives and go and fight in Ukraine are nut jobs. If that's what they want to do and they have a sense of, um, you know, wanting to, to fight for that cause because it, it, it touches them and, and they, that's what they want to do, that's fine. But I don't want to die for Ukraine and I don't want my children to die for Ukraine. I, I'd like to find, um, you know, I, I believe in sovereignty. I believe in the Ukrainians being, able to, Ukrainians being able to defend themselves as well. And I feel like I'm at this point where we're sort of talking in these kind of moral terms and I don't feel, it, it doesn't quite, it doesn't kind of ring true. Maybe I'm kind of deluding myself that that's where we may have to go. And the other thing that I wondered was, you know, the, the old thing that the first casualty of war is truth. How do we cope with that given the state of our media? You know, during um, COVID, they, they completely let us down, you know, pushed for our freedoms to be taken away. If you listen to radio in the morning, all we're fed is a diet of moral stories of these people being, you know, and that's true. I know it's true that these people are suffering and children are dying and, you know, people are, are having such an awful, awful time and war is bad. I agree. You know, I want peace. Um, but, you know, what do we do with, with that? How do we get to a point where we can really understand and hold our politicians to account when our media is so poor and there's only, there, there tends to be only one way of narrating the war. Uh, apologies, Nick. I, I missed your speech. I got here late, so really sorry about that. Two, Lucky two quick, you. Sorry, mate. Two quick questions. Um, the, the Economist Intelligence Unit had a report there about a fortnight ago. I don't know if anybody's made mention of it before I got here. It said two-thirds of the world's population are either neutral or support Russia. So, so what do we think of that first question? And the second question is about sovereignty. This might sound really stupid. Are we clear about our definition of sovereignty? So when James makes his point earlier uh, about sovereignty in the EU and so on and so forth, my question is this. 
why is it that the Ukrainians are fighting for freedom and sovereignty to join the EU? <coughs> Just because we have Brexit, do we think that the question of sovereignty in its definition is a done deal? Because it seems to me that other people fighting for their freedom have a different definition of self-determination and sovereignty to people in this country who, who voted Brexit and think it's a done deal. Yeah, I, I, I wanted to just raise three things about how, uh, despite obviously as the longer this goes on, the longer that uh, international forces and globalised forces will seek to try and assert some control over it, I'm still, I guess in a sense, optimistic about what this represents. The first is, of course, the widespread sense of solidarity that has emerged among publics right across, um, especially Europe, from people taking in refugees to organising aid convoys to, uh, as people have mentioned, going and joining uh, the fight themselves. And secondly, that the aid that has been sent to Ukraine um, in form of weapons is overwhelmingly bilateral. That is, it is, comes from sovereign, independent countries making choices uh, based in many cases because of the pressure of their own publics. It's no coincidence, I think, that Brexiteer Boris is considered by the Ukrainians as their most reliable ally and the supposed a liberal democracy in Poland is their biggest advocate. These things are not coincidences and they represent a, a sense of assertion of national interest, which we should do well to remember. And the third, of course, is that we can't lose sight of the fact that the courage and determination of the Ukrainians took everybody, and especially the globalists, by surprise, who never saw it coming and who didn't believe it that it was possible and in fact find it very, very uncomfortable. So that's why I think that the kind of Ukraine that emerges from this conflict uh, is hugely important for settling this question of who are the West and what is its future. We should do whatever we can to support Ukraine, but we have to also recognize that the kind of Ukraine that comes out of this will in some sense be a harbinger for what the West means going forward. I'm glad that Bill mentioned at the start that you, know, you kind of gave, us, gave me at least an out in saying you can defend um, and be on the same side as you know, NATO or the West or whatever in terms of the action that's taken militarily or whatever, or even be a bit of a Boris Johnson fan at the moment while he's doing some good things in relation to Ukraine. But just for now, and, that, and you, know, you basically have to, might have to get in, be in bed with some people that stink a bit for the time being, but it's just for the time being. But I suppose my question is, when does it stop being for the time being? Because if you look at the way in which, um, you know, to answer someone's question about whether or not, uh, why more people aren't talking about Ukraine, if you look at the way in which what's happening in Ukraine is described in BBC or any kind of mainstream media outlet, it's a lot of it is sort of apolitical. It's as if it's, as Piers was talking about, it's as if it was a humanitarian crisis, you know, as if like... Russian shelling is equivalent to a tsunami. It just is kind of God-given or something. It's uncontrollable. Who knows where it comes from? Um, it's constantly about one woman who's you know, lost a leg or things like that, which is terrible and necessary to talk about, but it's not political. And you look at the way in which... I mean, Angela Rayner um, from the Labour Party was on the radio this morning, very petulantly not willing to accept that actually <laughs> Boris Johnson has, um, as hum was it Humphrey said, played... a played a blinder in relation to done good things with this but she was saying it's not Boris Johnson it's the it's you know our country our whole country is behind it and actually it's not like that because it's you don't have a uh, international sense of the importance of sovereignty I mean Frank the article you wrote on Hungary recently for Spiked perfectly illustrated that 
in the same breath that you have all these EU leaders talking about talking in these empty terms about the sovereignty and Ukrainian sovereignty, they turn around and spit at Hungary when it exercises some semblance of democracy in terms of a democratically someone who's democratically elected that they don't like. So really my question is, you know, does it matter that this war is being defended by people who have proven over the last, you know, 10, 20 years that they wouldn't know what sovereignty was if it hit them over the head? Does it matter? Should we just should we just say whatever it's happening, and you know whatever comes out of Ukraine is is up for grabs, and you know to be decided, and we just have to hold our nose and back these people, or actually does it matter? If Frank, you're talking about things that frighten me, like a future of more defined blocks, or a future of a zombie West that can, is allowed to continue to carry on, bolstered by you know, not just Boris Johnson, but others bolstered by the significance of what they've done in relation to Ukraine? Or is that just for another day? Do I just need to keep my eye on the ball? And I am with Frank in saying that what matters is that Ukraine wins in this conflict. So basically, does the, do, we, do we have to be short-termist for now, actually, rather than looking at what might come of our actions tomorrow? Thank, thanks for that, Claire. Um, it's, I hope this is not a stupid question, but it's, it's, it's a short one. So for a while... For some people, Orban was the uh, bulwark, the, the vanguard of sovereignty in the European situation. And then Orban looks at Zelensky and says he's the enemy. And I'm well confused by that. I don't understand that. And I wish someone who has discussed sovereignty at length can ex explain to me how that works. Okay, thanks. I agree that uh, Ukraine winning this is incredibly important. Um, it was incredibly important. But maybe I've got it wrong. It looks like Russia may have got their foot in the mud here, and they're going to win. Uh, Ukrainians are going to win. It's going to be a slow, arduous process that's um, detrimental and, and uh, a huge pain for the Ukrainians. But a lot of large powers have gone into uh, highly motivated insurgencies, thinking that they can just sweep them. And it doesn't work. And it doesn't seem to me that this is going to work, um, and they're going to suffer this, and Ukraine will win anyways. Okay, thank you. All right. Uh, I'd just like to thank everybody for the great ideas, uh, and to get back to what I said originally about the tin ear of the West, I think we should look for triggers for f anything happening in the future. So f in Ukraine's case, we must remember that Yanukovych, the pro-Russian leader, was overthrown by street demonstrations that were supported by the West. And the West, if it had a maturity, would have said, go back to your houses, wait till the next election, and vote him out of office. But we didn't do that. And from that, we have this spiral. So look for blowback, look for triggers, and listen to other people. Well, just to answer Ella's um, question on I mean, yeah, occasionally you might have to be aligned with Boris Johnson. But then again, you can rapidly not be aligned and then be aligned again because I think events are going to be changing very, very quickly in quite a confusing way. Um, you know, we have to think both short-term and long-term. Just to pick up on Kevin's point at the back about, I think he said two-thirds of the world's population are pro-Russia. I read that as two-thirds of the world's population are anti-West. That's a very different concept, and that's the one that primarily we have to tackle. At the moment, everything America does is digging a deeper and deeper hole for itself. 
You know, by sequestering Russian assets, it's encouraging people to divest out of dollars. That's the future, which is not American. By imposing sanctions, even if only on oligarchs, it actually pushes those oligarchs closer to Putin because all their assets are frozen in the West, so they've only got assets in Russia. By buying oil from the Middle East, what could possibly go wrong? You know, so, you know, so we, we do need to think in those terms. Let's just finish on Laidi, because I've said him three times tonight. Um, you know, he points out that the end of the Cold War is not a return to 1945, it's a return to 1745. And I think that's the point that Frank's been making. You know, regional alliances, very fickle groupings that flit and change, and we need to be just as fast, whilst at the same time promoting what it is that we want. Okay, thank you. I think it's been a fantastic debate. Um, uh, um, just, to, just to conclude, I, I mean, I think this is an incredibly dangerous and difficult situation. It has forced us, it, and it will... I don't think it's going to go away anytime soon. I think Putin is digging in for as long as he thinks he, he, as, as, as he, thinks he can get away with it. Um, and um, that means that, um, really, there's an incredible need for a very, very, you know... For, incredibly skilled approach to this from our media uh, that really needs to understand the complexity of what's going on but it, it is forcing us to ask questions of ourselves about NATO about the West um, about the meaning of sovereignty and, and, and picking up on Ella's point I think you know if it means that some people who've been espousing what I would call sort of globalist ideas and rather sort of anti-democratic ideas and it's forcing them to think again fundamentally you know maybe that's a good thing but this is a really really tricky a uh, really tricky issue, and I'm sure that um, we're going to be here debating it for many uh, months to come. Okay, thank you. And Frank? Yeah, I mean, it's very tricky, but we don't have to align ourselves with anybody whose politics or whose way of life is contrary to ours. Uh, it's a bit like during the resistance in the Second World War. You had communists and Catholics and nationalists and socialists and conservatives all fighting on the same side. It didn't mean that they got married. It didn't mean that they somehow merged together. It simply meant that for a brief period of time, they had a common enemy. And I think that we have that. For a brief period of time, there's a common enemy. But at the same time, there is no way in which there's a, there's a the basis for a political or an intellectual or a moral rapprochement with uh, many of these uh, international institutions. That, that, that's not the... There's no... Alter, that's no choice that needs to be made there. And I think that we need to bear that in mind, that we need an independent focus on this. The points about the media are really quite important. That's why I really went to the Ukraine to find out for myself, because the, uh, the media in Britain and in the West can no longer present a war as a war. It's all human interest stories. It's all therapeutic. It's all about psychologizing. It very rarely shows the heroism of the resistance by the Ukrainians. You don't see very many scenes of actually fighting. And the language that is used is com completely inappropriate. You know, there is no genocide in the Ukraine. There's no total war by the Russians. They're, if they wanted total war, they would have, you know, it would be a very different situation because there's a certain moral restraint on them in the Ukraine that they didn't have in Syria or many, many other places. But th that doesn't make the war nice. The war is horrible. And instead of discussing the war in objective terms, we get a very disnified version of what's really taking place there. So we've got to basically criticize and question what's really going on there all, all, all the time. So the media is a huge problem. I want to end up by saying on this issue about democracy. I would rather have an election 
and lose that election. I would rather that my values were defeated in a democratic way than to impose my values on society through experts or NGOs or international institutions. Because either we believe in democracy as something that's foundational for the good life all over the world, and we're prepared to take a risk with it because democracy is a risk. It's, it's always very risky. You never know what its outcome is. Or alternatively, we, we retreat back into you know, these kind of institutions that have held back democracy in a proper kind of a way. And if people are war-weary in, in England and other countries, it's not because of their natural instinct. It's because they've been presented uh, with a situation, with a scenario with the war that resembles a reality TV show rather than something that is real genuine, something that could really capture their imagination. I think it's our job to tell our fellow citizens about what's really going on there and not simply treat it as this kind of disnified reality TV moment. Okay. Um, you know, regardless of the content um, being on, on occasion quite downbeat, I think what is liberating and what is inspiring is when you begin to understand situations with some depth and don't just feel like you're witnessing the disnification of the situation. And I think it's a real credit to all four of the panellists that they gave us a way in to understanding this with more depth. So I'd like to thank them all for contributing to that because it's very important. And this isn't just another war. This is more significant historically. I think we've got the gist of that. And it's possible, and I, certainly a lot of people I know don't want it to be and would rather it went away. And a lot of people have said, I want peace and I don't want this war. Well, I know, but, you know, there you go. Um, and Because it's caught, you know, things happen in history and you can't just pretend they aren't happening. Closing your eyes doesn't make it go away either. Um, and I think we are witnessing a historically significant moment. A lot of the trends that we're seeing also did exist before and are remnants of. And um, uh, at the end there, Frank almost in an advert mentioned the importance of the media. And we want the next in our series of Ukraine debates to be on the media and on misinformation. And obviously there's a broader discussion around things like the online safety bill, which is going to ban misinformation and how that fits in with war and who you can trust and so on and so forth. So. I hope that that can bring some clarity as well. Um, only just because um, I can't resist mentioning it, that during the uh, time after 2016, when um, Brexit was being sold out, as far as many people were concerned, they took a vote, it was being sold out, people became very weary and tired and wanted it to end. And people said, why don't you give up? And this was not bombs and horrible, vile uh, militarism, but it was a relentless, endless attempt at getting people to stop and change their mind and give up on what they'd fought for. And it was to the credit of millions of people that they refused to do that, even when they were war-weary. And I took, I, I was humbled by that and took some inspiration from it, as I thought that was what democracy was all, around, all about. And I simply think in relation to Ukraine, because somebody made the point it doesn't touch us, and I think it's, for me, the, the point about it is, is that it's a reminder that history doesn't just happen to you. 
but you can actually change the course of history. Because if you'd have said to me nine weeks ago that Russia would have done a full invasion of Ukraine, I thought you were mad. And then if you'd have said that this basket case of a half country, Ukraine, no disrespect, uh, led by a comedian, what? And we're going to put up the most this fight, right? I'd have thought you were bonkers. Well, what is absolutely remarkable is what people do. I mean, who'd have thought it? And they rise to the challenge. And that's what changes the course of history. And in that sense, at least, um, I'm touched by that. That the self-determination of the Ukrainian people means enough to them that they are transformed by acts of bravery they never thought they would be capable of. And, um, I mean, I'm definitely humbled by that. So I think that we must not allow people to simply say, just another war, you know, what's it got to do with me and so on. I, I think it's important for us to just keep saying, let's have some clarity about what this means. But I also think the warnings of a fantastic panel tonight, or it's not black and white, good and evil. Things change all the time. There's huge complexities. And we need to, as responsible citizens of the UK and a self-determining country, try and understand it and not just be dependent on what the politicians or the media tell us, which is what I hope the Academy of Ideas makes a small contribution to. We're about to go to the pub, and I'm going to tell you where it is, which is more complicated than you think, um, which is, um, where, God, I can't, I've written it down. Right, the Marquis of Cornwallis, which is Cross Woburn Place, 200 metres on Coram Street. There will be people who know what they're doing uh, when you get out. I also wanted to just uh, do one advert, which is that I myself am going to go to this, which is uh, the, uh, my colleagues at the BOI charity, uh, not the Academy of Ideas, but the BOI charity, are organising this residential event, Old Roots of the New Disorder, on Saturday the 16th and 17th of July in kind of very nice hotel conditions, but where some of these things can be discussed in depth with long lectures on the history of the new disorder. That's not just Ukraine, but very much some of the themes of tonight. So I feel I need to know a lot more and understand a lot more, and I'm going to go along. So I'm just inviting you to uh, come along and, and take a look at that advert. Can we thank our panel again? And then Thanks for listening to the podcast of Ideas. You can support us by subscribing, sharing, and leaving us a review. Check out our feeds for recordings from the Battle of Ideas Festival Archive and other Academy of Ideas events.